This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. The effort to unionize Amazon's facility in Bessemer, Alabama might at first blush sound like a local story, but it's also maybe one of the biggest moments for the organized labor movement in recent years. Yeah, and it could be a moment of hope for unions, depending on how this all shakes out. Most of the other big stories we've heard in recent years involving the labor movement have not been good news for them. I mean, think of right to work here in Michigan, for example. But this is one that could spark more unionizing efforts, especially in a growing sector like online retail. I mean, as we all know, Amazon is the Godzilla of American retail. That's right. Michigan Congressman Andy Levin has been down in Bessemer to see this effort up close, and he's he has a long history in the labor movement here in Michigan. He joins us now to talk about what this means here in the Mitten State. Congressman Levin, welcome back to Mishmash. Hey, Jay. Hey, Shana. It's so great to be with you again. So why should people here in Michigan be paying attention to this particular story? Oh, my gosh, Shana. I, you know, listening to your all's intro, this isn't just a hopeful moment for the labor movement. This is a hopeful work moment for the American working class. I mean, this is look, Amazon is the very symbol of what's happening to work today. And unless workers at Amazon can form unions, we are headed in a very bad direction. I mean, people there have to touch a package every eight seconds. They're monitored constantly, geopositional video, audio. You know, it's just, when I met with those workers, I couldn't even believe what that job's like. They pee in bottles because they don't have time to go to the bathroom at Amazon. I mean, it's, it's not right. And when that happens in American history, in our democracy, workers get together and form their own organization so they can have a say in making their workplace safe, just, fair. And that's what's happening in Bessemer. And it's a signal to the whole world that workers in America are going to get together and make a better workplace for themselves in the 21st century. And of course, we are seeing more investment by Amazon here in Michigan. I'm thinking about the state fairgrounds in Detroit is a big example of that. But talk specifically about where you see uh, that playing out here in Michigan, especially if the vote is successful. Well, so, I mean, if the vote is successful, it first of all, we got to just say it'll be amazing because the labor law is so stacked against workers in this country. And this is a great example of it. I mean, Amazon did everything they could to scare, intimidate, turn off those workers. And it's a super young workforce, overwhelmingly African-American workforce, Jake. So this, is a, this isn't just a, a union story. It's a Black Lives Matter story, and it's a generational story. And so here in Michigan, right, we are not really that much more unionized than the rest of the country anymore. Overall in America, only 6% of workers in the private sector even have a union, whereas the latest study by MIT found that 48% of non-union workers would like to have a union if they could. So this has huge implications for workers in hotels, restaurants, warehouses, factories, everywhere. Even, you know, the auto industry isn't even as unionized as it was in terms of parts and suppliers. And of course, not to mention transplants down south. Just stick in Alabama, Jake. 
if workers down there can unionize at the auto plants, that will give so much more bargaining power for our UAW members. It's, it's, it, the implications are very big for workers in Michigan. Now, you brought up the infamous peeing in bottles, and Amazon News's Twitter account addressed this, and I'm going to read it. They said, to quote their tweet, you don't really believe the peeing in bottles thing, do you? If that were true, nobody would work for us. The truth is that we have over a million incredible employees around the world who are proud of what they do and have great wages and health care from day one. What was your reaction when you either saw that tweet or heard about that and heard about that being Amazon's response? You know, Shana, it's not what my reaction was. It's what the world's reaction was. I've never seen an explosion on Twitter and beyond in response to that. People came out of the woodwork, Amazon workers saying, Are you kidding? I, this one woman said, I use a she-we, you know, like this little <laughs> thing that women use to pee without, I mean, it was a story that was, you know, there, that was refuted immediately by scores and hundreds of Amazon workers, drivers, warehouse workers, others. The truth is, if you're not given a bathroom break, you still live in a human body and you're going to have to go. And so it was really shameful that Amazon would say, let's just look, they say you, you should be so grateful. We already pay $15 an hour. Okay. This is, this is warehouse work. Wages in warehouses aren't $15 an hour. That's not a great wage for warehouse work. And in any event, look at the obscenity of what this they're talking about. The owner of this company, Jeff Bezos, got 68 or $69 billion richer during the pandemic. Okay, I can't imagine $1 billion or $100 million or $10 million. I mean, it's just the level of wealth inequality has gotten so obscene that workers are just standing up. And you know what? Their campaign isn't even mostly about money. It's about having a decent place to work, coming home whole, being able to work safely in a pandemic. So I think that the uh, communications of this company has been off the whole time. And, you know, I, again, this is a David and Goliath story, Shana. I can't predict these workers can win given all the intimidation they faced. But I guess my point is, even if they don't, even if they don't win, it just shows the urgency of us passing the Protecting the Right to Organize Act so workers in Michigan or Alabama or any other darn place in these great United States can have the basic freedom to form a union if they want to, just to come together with the other brothers and sisters at the place they work and have a voice in that workplace and in that industry and in our economy. We, unless we do that, we're not going to rebuild the middle class in this country. Full stop. The turnover in the facility in Bessemer and evidently in a lot of their facilities is 100% a year. So I found Amazon's comments that you reference, especially inappropriate when they say, oh, you know, we pay $15 an hour and we have a million employees and whatever, and they're so happy. You don't have turnover like that if employees are happy and if the job is livable, sort of. And the second thing is, in terms of how important this is, just for, for folks who, you know, I know the folks who follow you guys love data. I went to the NLRB and I got a database of all of their elections in the 21st century. There are about 25,000 in there. 
This is the third biggest election, NLRB election in the 21st century in America. So the fact that this is in Bessemer, Alabama, obviously the biggest election in the South in you know, generations, but aside from two elections at Kaiser Permanente, a huge health system in California that's already significantly unionized, in other words, a complete world away from Amazon and Bessemer in many different senses, this is such a huge election. So I, you know, I've devoted my life more than anything to helping workers get more voice and power in this economy and win or lose. This election in Bessemer has set off a different era of U.S. labor relations. I feel really strongly about that and that workers in this country are going to stand up and demand change in the law. And then they're going to organize in their workplaces like they haven't in decades. And Lord knows America needs that, not just to rebuild the middle class, but to take on justice for women and racial justice because unionized workers have much smaller gaps in pay between women and men, between black workers and white workers, between Latinx workers and white workers. So this is really, uh, I hope, the start of a new day for workers in this country. And it's, it's just amazing to think what might happen. I'm, I'm excited about it. You mentioned the right to organize uh, legislation in Congress. I wanted to talk about the fact that, of course, Alabama is a right to work state. Michigan is a right to work state. I'm curious, you know, for one thing, talking about that fact and maybe how that plays into this entire process. But talk about the legislation as well and what that would mean for organizing in a country where the uh, momentum has been going in the other direction for, for a very long time. Well, Jake, as somebody who started out in the early 80s helping nursing home workers in places like Cass City, Michigan, and Grand Haven and Muskegon and Farmington form unions with the service employees, not much has changed in a way, meaning that employers can violate workers' rights. There's basically no penalties for doing so. Um, even staying within the law, they're allowed to intimidate people. They can make people go to uh, mandatory meetings all day long on the job. It goes on and on. What would this Protecting the Right to Organize Act or PRO Act do? It would change the situation fundamentally. First of all, workers could decide whether to have the, an election at their work site or at a neutral, safe third, you know, site off of work or electronically. In this case, Amazon delayed the whole thing, demanding an in-person election in the middle of the pandemic. Just outrageous. Secondly, elections would be faster. Thirdly, there would be no mandatory meetings, not allowed for the boss to intimidate workers. I mean, it should be up to the workers, anti-union, pro-union, whatever, let them vote. If they vote to unionize, fine. If they don't, fine. But the idea of the boss trying to force you not to form a union, that's not a fair, you know, a fair thing at all. Um, also, right now, employers violate the law and fire people in like 40% of these elections. Under the PRO Act, if we passed it, if they, like Shana's organizing for the union, they're like, oh, we're going to fire Shana. They don't fire her because of Shana. They fire her to scare all the other workers. Well, under the PRO Act, the National Labor Relations Board could put Shana right back in the job the next day, you know, right away. And then the workers would get the message, oh, I guess we do have the right to do this if we want to. Um, 
and it would allow workers to express solidarity with each other. In 1947, over Harry Truman's veto, the Republican Congress passed the Taft-Hartley amendments. One of the things in there was, like if you're a trucker going into a plant where workers are organizing around strike, you're not allowed to honor them by saying, I'm not driving in there. Well, that's basic First Amendment rights. And so that would be restored. Basic, and, and it would end this, I don't call it right to work, Jake, I call it right to freeload. I mean, this idea that worker, that, that employers and unions aren't even free to negotiate a contract where all the workers pay their fair share to administer the contract is just ridiculous. It would end that. So the PRO Act would basically bring the labor laws into the 21st century. We literally haven't passed anything that makes it easier for workers to organize and bargain since the National Labor Relations Act itself in 1935. That may be hard to believe, but it's true. And at the same time, there have been literally dozens of state and federal laws, court decisions, and administrative actions that made it harder for workers to get together. Like misclassifying workers as independent contractors when they really should be able to organize. Like corporations changing the way they're organized so that they say, oh, I'm not the employer, that other, you know, that subcontractors the employer. The PRO Act deals with all that and says, look, this is America. If workers who are working at an actual place and working together want to form a union, they have the God-given right to do so. And that would really um, reduce income and wealth inequality. You know, if you look at a chart of the last hundred years and take two things, how many workers were in unions and how much of all the income the top 10% richest people got, those lines are in almost perfect inverse proportion to each other. So after the Wagner Act was passed in 1935, the, for the next 15 years, the number of workers in unions shot up and inequality went down, down, down. And then we had this greatest period of the American middle class in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. We just want to get that back in the new economy for the 21st century. Let tech workers and gig workers and service workers form unions like manufacturing workers did in the 30s and 40s. That's all we want. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, Glenn Spencer, senior vice president at the, the chamber, has said that this uh, legislation would be completely stacked against employers. Uh, provision after provision, he says this bill, uh, again, is completely stacked against, against employers and we think workers, too. I'm curious what your response is to that. Jake, the the business community will fight against this harder than anything else. And it's a sad thing. And I'm, you know, I work with business community leaders all the time on so many policy issues. But here's my response. When uh, employers and workers are you know, have, are duking it out over how to divide the pie, fine. Sometimes the business might be right. Sometimes the workers might be right. But whether workers even get a seat at the table to talk about how to divide the pie, no. The Chamber of Commerce should just sit down and let workers have the freedom to form unions in this country. We are the only advanced democracy that allows this kind of oppression of workers and preventing them from having unions. The vast majority of workers in France or England or Sweden or Canada, other countries, are either in unions or covered by collective bargaining that is led by unions, and it makes for a much better economy. And that's all we want. And 
I think Joe Biden realizes that um, we're going to have to, you know, pass this regardless of, of, you know, opposition from some interests of, of wealthy corporations that, you know, want to prevent it. I'm curious, given how Amazon treats its employees um, and all of the negatives that you have cited, is it a good thing that Michigan has so many Amazon warehouses and distribution centers? You know, Shana, I mean, my my reaction is mixed. I'll tell you why. Because number one, I don't I don't like like, you know, when Walmart came along and we lost so many hardware stores on Main Street, right? And small stores. I didn't like that at all. Um, but ultimately, I don't think we can stop technological change. What we need is worker voice and power in change to make it human, to make it just, to make it fair. So whether Amazon is, you know, a good or bad phenomenon, it's here. And uh, we need to uh, fight to to make it human. <laughs> we need to fight to make it human for its workers and for our planet. And the best way to do that is to let Amazon workers form unions and have some power within the, the company. And that's true, whether you're talking about an auto company or a telecommunications company or a packaging and distribution company. Uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask you uh, about something that's related to the workforce, but not directly related to what's going on in Bessemer. But, uh, the, the, of course, the new big push in Washington is a massive in- infrastructure spending package. Uh, your electric vehicle charger plan is actually a really big part of President Biden's push for infrastructure. Uh, what would that plan accomplish and what's your reaction to its inclusion in the package? Well, I'm just thrilled uh, that the president has such a big focus on electric vehicles in general, electrification of transportation even more broadly, but very specifically EV chargers. My EV Freedom Act, which, you know, as you say, is just right, you know, very much part and parcel of what they're talking about, uh, says this, look, Mary Barra is committed to a fully electric future. Our auto companies are racing ahead. All of them are making great electric models. But really, is the average person going to be able to buy an electric vehicle if they can't hop in the, that car and go visit grandma in Omaha, Nebraska? This is America. We got to be able to road trip, right? And the problem is that the market doesn't solve everything. And nobody exactly has an economic interest to make sure we have a comprehensive network of high-speed chargers through the whole national highway system. So you can jump in a car in Warren, Michigan and go to the Florida Keys or Los Angeles or Seattle or wherever the heck you wanna go without worrying about running out of juice. That's what my bill would do. I spoke in a group call with uh, Pete Buttigieg yes, you know, the other day and said, we are so grateful that you're going in this direction, but I'm, Jake, I'm into crossing the T's and dotting the I's to make sure that their proposal really um, hits this idea of charging infrastructure for longer trips, because most charging will always happen in people's houses and workplaces, but the, but people, normal people can't, buy a car that they can't use to go on a road trip. They have to be able, if their kids in college and they get in trouble, they got to go. And so we need this, this charging infrastructure right now 
to make sure that we kill road, uh, range anxiety and allow widespread uh, adoption of EVs. I want our UAW members and our auto companies who are making these cars to be able to sell a lot of them for the sake of our auto industry here and the workers and our planet. So that's, that's our, the goal of, of, of the EV Freedom Act. And, and, I, and that's what the president seems to be heading towards and I couldn't be happier. It, following up on that, uh, President Biden let a lot of gun control advocates down uh, when he said that this infrastructure package would take priority over gun reform. I know that there are quite a few people who, who came out as being very frustrated about that. I guess. What is what is your reaction to that? Well, I, you know, Shana, I was at the White House last week, week meeting with his senior staff with a few colleagues. And one of my colleagues was getting, you know, like, saying that, oh, the president shouldn't have said a particular thing, not about gun legislation. And I thought the chief of staff was so amazing. He didn't say, oh, Joe Biden, you know him. He says things sometimes. He said, you know, we we all make mistakes. We'll learn from our mistakes. This is a big, complicated thing we're doing. He totally didn't throw his boss under the bus. But I got to tell you, we need sensible gun reform right now. We need it yesterday. We need it years ago. The carnage going on in mass shootings, in suicides, in neighborhood shootings, in kids having access to loaded weapons. It is horrifying. And we need to move forward absolutely as fast as we can. I can tell you that, you know, my class in Congress is really huge, right? The, 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 the class that first came in in 2018, we were immediately on our group uh, email chain talking about how we could push for action on gun reform in the Senate right now. You know, we've already passed our background universal background checks bill and our bill to close the Charleston loophole in the House. So those are sitting there ready to go in the Senate and we should take more action. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm not going to worry about the president's exact words for most of us. And I think in his heart, it is a huge priority. It's just hard to be in charge of everything and try to do it all at once, I suppose. Well, and those are also two uh, two packages that would use up a lot of a president's political capital, right? I mean, doing it in tandem uh, in some ways uh, seems really difficult considering how big a push. That, I mean, if you look at the last couple of presidents, you have essentially, it seems like, enough political capital to get two maybe big packages through in your first term before before uh, things start uh, getting difficult to, to move. I mean, uh, those are two really, really big things. I'm curious, you know, do you think that the president has enough political capital to do both in tandem? Well, now you're really getting into your all specialty, right, of this political stuff. <laughs> I, here, I have a different take on this. I have a really different take on this. I think that we can buck history and not have the president's party lose seats in the House and Senate and therefore lose control of both because our majorities are so slim if we pass large parts of our agenda. Caution is the wrong approach here. The American people are crying out for action on climate change, action on, on systemic racism, action on economic inequality, They want $15 an hour. They don't want to hear me give a speech about $15 an hour. They want $15 an hour. And they don't care much about arcane Senate procedures that prevent them from getting it. 
we've already passed the Equality Act. We've already passed our democracy reform, sensible gun reform, the PRO Act in the House. So we are going to have to figure out a way to get the Senate to move on a lot more of our priorities. And that may involve talking filibusters, getting rid of the filibuster altogether, using the reconciliation process more as the president did so brilliantly with us on the American Rescue Plan. It's gonna be quite an interesting ride. So strap on your seatbelts is all I could say, because we're, 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 we're really pushing to get a lot more done than just say, like, pass the Affordable Care Act, and that's your legacy if you want to go back to the last time. We just, it's, and it's, that's not a judgment about Barack Obama. That's about this moment we're living in with all of these crises hitting us all at once. And it's, it's just demanding that we take more action. Congressman Andy Levin is a Democrat from Bloomfield Township representing Michigan's 9th District. Congressman Levin, it's always great having you here on Mishmash. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Shana. Take care of yourselves. It's, you know, we got a serious COVID situation out here in Michigan. So everybody who can hear my voice, please take care. All right. That's all for Mishmash. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. Thanks for listening. 